humans are hardwired to enjoy life. Genesis says that when God made life, he called it good and he was pleased. So from the beginning, life was supposed to be satisfying and enjoyable. Actually, uh, uh, one of the implications of a biblical doctrine of creation is that life is supposed to be lived, life is supposed to be loved, and, and experienced fully. Now, whether or not you are a Christian, this is true of you. That impulse, the drive to want to get the most out of life is there by the design of being a human being. And, and not just in the big, obvious ways, like so the thrill and uh, excitement you get from, from catching a perfect wave or, or skiing down a, a slope or, or seeing the picturesque sun sunrise or a beautiful sunset or hearing the laughter of a child, which is the best sound there is, or being with families and friends who know you and love you, not just in those big things, it's very obvious we love life, but even in the really not so obvious small things that happens dozens and dozens times a day that brings you joy, and you're not even consciously aware of it. Like, like uh, pulling out a, um, a perfectly formed curly fry from your order of regular fries, for example, right? The lo- we are designed to love enjoyment and derive pleasure from life. I mean, if you just stop and think about how deep this impulse runs, think of all the things that, that I guess, that we don't think about that we derive pleasure from. So, so to prove that point, I put together a list, it's, you know, not in any particular order, of things that we really do get happy about, and we're sometimes not even aware of them, and maybe one or two of them will resonate with you. So no particular order, but here's the first one. That moment when you buy something, usually an electronic gadget of some sort, and you get to peel the, the plastic right off of it. You know that feeling? I love pulling that thing off, like of my new iPhone or something. I love that. It gives me joy. Just like when someone gives you a gift card and there's that funky rubbery glue at the back end that you have to roll off before you can use it, those little things in life fill me with joy. Or what about these next couple that I have up here? Um, This one you can relate to if you work early. Waking up early in the morning thinking you got to go to work only to realize you've still got four hours more to sleep. Yes, right? Or, uh, this is my wife's favorite, I don't know, I could only find a cat, a cat looking in a dryer, but pulling out a, a freshly dried blanket from a dryer and wrapping yourself in it. My, life, my wife loves that one. Here's one, um, maybe unusual, but I enjoy it. The first shower right after a haircut. You know that feeling when all the hair's in your shirt or whatever and you get to jump in a shower? I love that. Uh, for you people who are perfectionists, that feeling you get when you perfectly pull a perforated piece of paper and the whole thing is perfect all the way down the line, right? Some of you get into that thing. Here's my, one of my favorites. When you go to a vending machine and it takes your dollar the first time, right? You just, none of this thing, no flipping out the corners, it just goes right in. I love that. Or, I love this one with my kids, the moment the lights go down in a movie theater right before it begins. Oh, I love that. I love that. And then here's two final ones. When you achieve the perfect ratio of milk to cereal in your breakfast, ah, I knew I was going to strike a chord. Or, and this is so true at my house right now because we had AC problems, the moment you walk into a building with AC and that first wave of coolness goes over you, right? 
humans are hardwired to enjoy life. That's why the study of the book of Psalms is so important. You see, Psalms not only teaches us what to sing, and that's what the Psalms are. They are a collection, over 800 years actually, of wisdom, poetry, and songs that the nation of Israel collected together to sing in congregational settings like this. They don't just teach us what to sing. The Psalms actually teach us how to sing. In other words, the Psalms show us how to connect as emotional beings because that's how God designed us. They show us how to engage in this life. By reading the Psalms, we learn not just what to sing. We learn how to sing about our, our, our pains, our struggles, our angers, our difficulties, our joys, our pleasures, our hopes, our confidence, our faith. In short, our lives are given to us in the book of Psalms. They teach us. You know, before that phrase, emotional intelligence, got popular, The book of Psalms was teaching the people of God how to be intelligent about their emotions for centuries and centuries. You know, it starts uh, with Psalm 1, beautifully laying out the trajectory, really, of the whole Bible. It talks about, at the end of the day, there's only two ways to live, and that's the way of the wise and the way of the fool. And then 150 chapters later, it ends saying that all of creation's response to their creator ought to be one thing— and that is praise. So that's what the book of Psalms is all about. So in the next five weeks, as we get into the second half of our summer series on parables and poetry, we're entering into the the poetry phase now, we're going to look at five important psalms that really display the range of human emotion and situations that we're going to encounter. And we're going to start today by looking at Psalm 63, a psalm written by by Israel, uh, Israel's most cherished king, even to this day, King David, as he talks about what he believed was better even than life. And as Kathy read it for us, this psalm breaks down really easily into three distinct sections. Verses 1 through 4, the psalmist searched for God. Verses uh, 5 through 8, the psalmist satisfaction in God. And the verses 9 through 11, the psalmist salvation from God. So we're going to see uh, the search for God, the satisfaction in God, and salvation from God. With that, let me ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word, and we'll dive right in. You pray with me. Father, we thank you that your word is so rich. Just in the, the few hours as, as, as we've been holding services and getting together, just seeing your word uh, building up, edifying, challenging, stretching, encouraging your people uh, this morning has been amazing. Father, we think of the the words we have sung, how you have prepared our hearts even now, uh, whether or not we recognize that those songs crying out for life, we are a people that were designed for life. That's why you made us. And Lord, we thank you that your word teaches us about how to get it in its fullest. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see that in your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So the search for God, Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. When I say that the psalmist is searching for God, I don't mean it in the kind of way you might search for a bathroom in a mall or a restaurant where you're genuinely unfamiliar with the subject that you're searching for. When I say that the psalmist is searching for God, it is something that he knows very much about, and that is why he's actually searching for him. He's not searching to learn. 
He knows, and that's why he's searching. I was joking around the first hour. It's kind of the same way I search for my wife around here every week. It's not because I'm searching for her to get to know her. I know my wife. That's why I'm always looking for her on a Sunday morning here at church because we come here differently. So I'm always asking, where's my wife? Where's my wife? It's not to get to know her better. It's because I know my wife, and that's why I want to be here. I want to be with her more than anyone else here. Well, the psalmist knows who his God is, and he wants to be with him more than anyone else he knows because he knows him. It's that knowledge of him that fuels the passion for him. And his opening line in this first verse is really the key to all that follows in this psalm. Look at that. Psalm 63, verse 1, he writes this. Oh God, you are my God. Because of that, I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. You see, the simplicity and boldness of that expression in Psalm 1 is the very heart of the covenant that God makes with his people. God, you are my God. He's expressing the very core of the covenant relationship that God established with humanity. As far back as Genesis 17, when Yahweh, when God was ratifying the covenant with Abraham, he said, you will be my people and I will be your God all the way up and through thousands of years later in the book of Hebrews, the author writes as God's ratifying his covenant to his new people, I will be your God, and you will be my people. You see, the whole covenant relationship was bound up in one word, relationship. That God and man could know each other personally. You know, whatever cultural issues lands on the cultural radar of the church that grabs the headlines for a moment, maybe the attention grabber, But you know the most radical claim that Christianity makes above any other claim that we might talk about, whether it has to do with culture, sexuality, economics, immigration, whatever Christianity addresses, the most radical claim is that Christianity holds out that we actually have a personal relationship with God. You realize how radical claim that is? We are not just saying that we can know details about God which is very easy to misunderstand, right? We, we often do that, kind of like uh, you see people who know all these details about their favorite celebrity, and they actually think they know the celebrity, right? We do that with each other. Knowing details about one another is not the same as knowing one another, right? So let's not make that same mistake about God, and that's not what we're saying when we say to people, you can have a re- personal relationship with God. We are actually saying, you can know the way he feels about things, what he thinks about things, how he responds and will react to certain situations. That's when you know somebody, right? When you say, remember when you were dating, if you're uh, you know, married or in your serious relationship, when you say, oh, we're just getting to know each other, you're not saying, oh, he's got blue eyes and he weighs 160 pounds and he's five foot nine. That's not what you're saying, right? You're saying, I know why his heart beats I know what what she fears, what she dreams for. That's what you're talking about. That's the radical claim that Christianity is holding out. That's the radical claim that Christianity has held out for, for centuries, that God can be known and known personally. Now, if you stop and think why this is so important is because every difficulty that people seem to have at some point or another can be traced back to this issue of do you know God? 
And again, this, this doesn't apply just to non-Christians or Christians. This is all of us. Right? We all have these views of God that are either influenced by, but on the one hand, what I might call um, maybe a too religious view of God, or on the other hand, what, you might, what I might call an irreligious view of God. And by irreligious, I don't mean anti-religious. I just simply mean it's not informed by some religious tradition or some religious text. It's more informed by popular culture. But we have these kinds of views of God that are either religious or irreligious. And based on those misperceptions, if something happens in our life that doesn't fit our view, we begin to wonder what God is up to or if he even really exists. Right? So, so if, if you have a, um, maybe an overly religious view of God, right? so if you've come from, uh, you know, it's, and part of it is the church's fault, right? Like, for example, have you ever seen a picture of a Puritan smiling? Right, we, we, we don't have that, you know, you just, the Puritans aren't known for people who smile, you have all these pictures of church history, and nobody's smiling, they all look kind of cranky, uh, uh, don't get me wrong, I love the Puritans, Richard Baxter's my favorite Puritan, and I've been doing some reading on the Puritans, and one scholar said, uh, here's a definition of Puritanism, the haunting feeling that someone out there is having a good time, <laughs> Okay, so that's the wrap of this religious view of God because it's kind of, they rightly focus on the holiness of God, the the demand of right living and all that, but it kind of went crazy and became this overly religious image where God is this kind of uh, cosmic crank. He's mean-spirited, he's angry all the time, he doesn't love people much, he just wants you to follow his rules rules and just wants you to do what he says, right? That's one view of God that people have. They used to be feared, and that's God. But on the other hand, and, and, and that's not satisfying, right? We intuitively know that's not satisfying. But on the other hand, a lot of common views of God is what we call pop culture. And this view of God is, is equally not satisfying. There, there's no sense of standards that he has. There's no sense of expectation. God is this kind of cosmic valet or divine therapist. Who, his whole purpose of living is just to make me happy, and so why in any situation would I actually worship and sacrifice my life for him? Why don't he just get me into more Starbucks or do something else to make me happy? So that's another view of God that's out there in culture, in the church as well, right? But then there's this third view that the Bible's always holding out about who God is. And, and, and this view of God through the gospel of grace, he, he's kind of like a really good dad. Right? For those of you who've been blessed enough to have one, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, it's, it's one of those kinds of guys that's really engaged in your life, you know, that he's in your corner. He's going to be at your, your baseball game. He's rooting for you. He wants the best for you. He loves you. He sacrifices for you. But because of all that, he also won't let you get away with much, will he? He will discipline you. He has expectations of you because he wants you to grow up to be a man or woman, even if you don't want to. And the greatest thing is, he's not so much concerned with your happiness as he's concerned with your holiness because he knows at the end of the day, that's more important. But if your view of God is more influenced by a religious view or or pop culture, there could be some problems with that. So if you have a religious view of God and, and life is going well, there's this always sense that the bottom might fall out of it, right? You're always kind of waiting for, when's the other shoe going to drop? Because life is going too good and I can't be too happy because that's not how God wants us to be, right? That's not satisfying. 
But, but also, on the other hand, if, if life is going bad, eventually you feel like, I want a God that actually is in my corner, and life is always tough, it's always hard, I can't worship somebody if this is the only way we're going to relate. And so you feel like you don't want him. On the other hand, if your view of God is influenced too much by pop culture, and, and life is going bad, you're going to naturally conclude, where is God? I mean, after all, isn't his job to make me happy? Isn't his job to fulfill me? He's not doing his job, so either he's not true or, or he doesn't like me. Or if life is going good, you think, well, hey, life is going pretty good, and, and if this is this God and I'm supposed to be worshiping him, but I seem to be getting everything I want, and, and a lot of this I can get on my own, what need do I actually have for him? Especially in this day and age when I can get all my satisfaction and all these things around me. So the, the point I'm getting at here is if your view is either one way too leaning or leaning the other way too far, you're either going to realize that you don't want him or you don't need him. But if we read the Bible, we understand the gospel of grace, the, the God that's presented to us in Scripture, not only do you realize that, that you, you definitely need him, but you're going to desperately want him. And that's the metaphor that the psalmist uses right here in Psalm 63. So, so notice, he, starts, he uses this metaphor that's very common to them, is that of thirst. So, verse 1, he passionately is seeking God, this thirst, because like water, he needs God, but also like water in an arid desert that's cool and refreshing, he wants God. And he needs him and wants him because he knows him. And so for verse 2, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. King David certainly would have been able to look at events in his life to see the power and glory of God, just as we should be able to. Now, you might be saying, well, that's easy for you, Pastor, um, but right now I don't see many, many things in my life where I see God's power or glory, and that might be true. But you don't have to look much past your own salvation, that God's power was at work. Do you remember what it was like before you were a Christian, the things you desired, the way your life was lived, the passions that ruled you, right? That's what, that's what Paul was writing to the Corinthians. Some of you, us were such one of you. He says, we used to be abusers. We used to be blasphemers. We used to be idolaters. We used to be all these things, but then the power of God changed us. Right? That, that's why the gospel of grace cannot bring pride. I didn't do these changes. All of a sudden, in my heart, things began to change. Well, that's the power of God. When you look back in, in the, your own salvation to see God's glory, how he has magnified himself in your life. So like David, we look and we see the power and glory of God. But then David says something in verse 3 that is one of those kinds of verses that is life-changing I remember I was in my, um, on Monday, I was in my auxiliary office, you, you call it Starbucks, but I had my laptop there, I had my Bible, and I had a pen and paper, and I was reading through the psalm. When I read verse 3, it was one of those moments, it was just astounding. I remember it because there was a, a woman walking past who looked at me really peculiarly because I leaned back in my chair and kind of did this, and I just started letting it soak in. And the psalmist writes, your steadfast love is better than life. Let that sink for a second. This psalmist, King David, says, 
Now, now he's saying, if you look in your text, because of this reality, and then it's followed up by several, in verse 4 and verse 5, the ways his life is going to be different. But the phrase itself, David is saying, your steadfast love is better than life. To the degree that you can say this, that, that God's love is better than life, to that same degree, you're untouchable. What do I mean by that? Remember I talked about we're hardwired uh, by God at creation for enjoyment and fulfillment and happiness. That's, that's a reality. That's a biblical doctrine here that God made us for goodness. But because of sin, our ability, our filter, if you will, to discern what brings us the truest joy and the ways about to attain that joy is itself radically defective. So we were made for fulfillment. We were made for joy, but because sin scarred us and deformed us, our ability to even perceive what is the best for us and to pursue what is best for us is radically defective. And so what we do is rather than invest the love and, 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 and what we were created for to our creator, we seek our joy and fulfillment in the creation. So However good it might be, we, we pour our joy, our heart into our marriages or, or into being married. And then if marriage is harder than you realized or it didn't turn out the way you wanted or, or, or your kids don't turn out the way you want, you're devastated. Or, or you pour out your joy into the concept of marriage, but if it never happens, you're devastated. Or we pour our joy into our hobbies or our, our, our friendships, our accomplishments. You fill in the blank. Right? And the way you fill in the blank is, my life would be perfect if. Whatever you put in that if, functionally speaking, is God to you. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Because the psalmist says, man, your love for me, your gracious, ever-giving, covenant, chesed love, steadfast love, is better than life. But if you're saying, no, 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 my life would be happy, perfect, if that thing, that if, is functionally who your God is. And so what the psalmist, what God's word is telling us is that, no, 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 don't put your joy in things that were never intended to give you the kind of joy that you desperately need and want. Not in those things. You see, to the degree your joy is vested in the things of this earth, to the degree your heart is given to those things, to that degree your joy and your heart can be taken from you. That make sense? To the degree my hope is placed in, in my family, in my kids, in my friendships, in my career, all those things. To the degree that's true, when those things can get taken from me, to that degree, so is my joy and my hope. You know, this morning, uh, one of our elders were praying, and he talked about us having misplaced affections. And it made me think of the church father, Augustine who Augustine was a brilliant mind in the the early church in the 4th and 5th century AD, he said, the problem with humanity is that we still love. That didn't change when sin entered the picture. He said, now our loves are disordered. We don't love the things we ought to love in the right way at the right times, and we love the things we shouldn't love too much and too inordinately, he says. Our loves are disordered. They're all jumbled around, and we can't discern that. And see, this is a reality that even other religions have picked up on. So if you're familiar with Buddhism, they, they recognize that, boy, that, that we have these disordered loves and it brings so much agony. Unfortunately, their, their, their response to that is then give up all loves, give up all desire. If you don't have desire, you can't have suffering. 
And so they created what they call nirvana, right? That, that's the same idea, but that's unsatisfying from a biblical perspective. Now, this, this doesn't mean, don't, don't misunderstand, this doesn't mean we don't love our families and our marriages and our kids and our hobbies and our careers. It doesn't mean we can't love those things. A biblical balanced doctrine of creation says we should love those things, But what we're talking about is the difference between relative and ultimate value. And don't put ultimate value in things that only should have relative value. And don't put relative value on something that's ultimate value. Now the way that you keep ordered loves in your life is to keep second things second and make sure first things are first. Keep your finger in Psalm 63. Let's go to what Jesus says about this. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is getting at this very same issue. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. So, so as you're turning there, I just want to be real clear again that, that we're not talking about not having these loves for you. We're not talking that you can't give your heart and your joy in the things of this world. We're merely saying let's keep ultimate things ultimate and relative things relative, right? Because to the degree I give my heart and joy to the things of this world, to that degree it can be taken from me. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's this great insight, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? Now, is Jesus saying you shouldn't have treasures? No, he's not saying that. He's not saying you shouldn't have treasures. What Jesus is saying is, hey, you can have those treasures, but make sure your treasures are on the things that can't be taken away from you. If you put them in the things of this world, rust and moss and thieves can take it from you. But if you put them where the things where they ought to be, where there can be no moss and rust and thieves, nothing can take your joy. You'll be untouchable. And then he follows it up with that wisdom of Scripture. Because you know what? Wherever you put your treasure, wherever you put your joy, guess what? That's where your heart's going to be. And if you put your heart into the things of this world, not only can those things be taken away from you, but it's all temporary. But if you put your heart into things that can never be taken away from you, they will be eternal. And the psalmist, go back to Psalm 63, this, this combination of this passionate search for God and the realization of his ultimate worth results in the psalmist's satisfaction in verses 5 through 8. I love how the psalmist switches up the metaphors. It starts in verse 1 with this, this thirst, God, I'm thirsting for you, you quench my thirst. And then verse 5, he, he switches metaphors because now it's not thirst, it's a meal that he is just just filled himself up with rich, fat foods that he is just finger-licking good, satisfied. Even the word satisfaction sounds good, doesn't it? Look at what he says. My soul, my soul will be satisfied. How? As like someone who had a fat and rich meal. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Man, I don't know about you, but I feel really loved by God when I'm eating a good meal. 
Do, do you, I mean, just, you know, God didn't have to make taste buds. And, and I've been having this conversation. I've been, and somebody said, well, from an evolutionary perspective, it's helpful because it tells you what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. That's not true because half the things I love eating are horrible for me. So it doesn't serve a survival of the fittest kind of function. They're completely superlative. What's the word? Superlative? Superlative? Completely unnecessary? Let's just go with that. They're completely unnecessary for any reason to have taste buds. When I eat bacon, I tell my kids, every time we eat bacon, praise God for Acts chapter 10, right? Because that was the section when God said you can eat bacon. But the point is, I feel the love of God when I eat good food, right? Because that's God saying, I love you. I made bacon, (laughs) right? Ain't I good? I made bacon. Oh, I ate sashimi, raw fish. Ain't I good? That's why I think meals are so part of the Christian faith because they ought to lead to worship, And here we have the psalmist saying, man, I love you so much. Your your steadfast love is better than life. And because of that, I'm satisfied. We don't live in a world that's satisfied. When was the last time you were satisfied? Even saying that word, I like it. You know what that means, right? You have no need. You're content. You're, you're, You're at peace Everything you could be, every need you have is met. Every joy you have is fulfilled, and you're satisfied. Do you realize we live in a culture? Now, if you're a Republican, don't get all mad at me because I'm going to harp on capitalism. If you're a Democrat, don't get too excited here. But do you realize that the system we live in of capitalism is predicated on the fact that you've got to have a need, that some product can meet that need, so you've got to buy stuff. So we're going to bring out the next new iPhone so you feel like you need the next thing or the next new fall fashion wardrobe so you feel like you need that, a brand new car. Our culture is predicated on you're empty, you have a need, we can meet the need. It's all around us. You cannot not be influenced by that. I am. And I'm so easily sitting in front of the television and go, oh my gosh, 10 seconds ago I thought my life was fine but all of a sudden I I need this thing. Right? It's the most abused word in the English language. I tell my kids that all the time. Do you really need the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu action grip? Do you really need that? Well, yeah. No, you want that, right? And dad, I must meet your needs, but not all your wants. The point is this. We live in a culture that is predicated on making us feel that we don't have so that we can fill that void with stuff. And whether it's consumer goods or even just the way we live. And the Bible's holding out a view that that's not the way it's supposed to be. Our satisfaction can be found just like this psalmist. That the man or woman who searches after God, like the man or woman who is needing water in the desert, they will be satisfied. They will be, have their needs met. The man or woman who realized that God's love is better than anything else, even life itself, they will be eternally, truly, and fully satisfied. Just like the individual who finishes a great sumptuous meal is satisfied. In John's gospel, uh, Jesus was having a conversation with a woman uh, in John chapter 4, and he was getting to that ver- this very same issue. Let me read it to you briefly. John 4, Jesus is talking to this woman at the well, and, and, and she doesn't quite get it. And so Jesus explains to her, he says, everyone who drinks the water of this well, they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In my study, I have a little quote written on a piece of paper pinned to my my board. It says this, I want to love Christ more than what life can give to me and more than death can take from me. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But that prayer resonates so much with what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 63. I want to love Christ more than anything this life can give to me. And I want to love Christ more than anything death can take from me. The man or woman who can get there is ultimately untouchable by the trials and difficulties of this life. And they are truly and deeply satisfied, unlike anything else. In a very real sense, that is the salvation of which um, King David is, is alluding to in verses 9 through 11 when he talks about his salvation from God. You see he's foreshadowing it in verse 8. Because I have searched for you and because you have satisfied me, at the end of verse 8, your right hand upholds me. So, so just as verses 5 through 8 are the natural result of the one who passionately searches in verses 1 through 4, so is God's salvation of the natural result of all that's come before it. Now, in, in Psalm 63, obviously David's referring to a, a real physical salvation and deliverance from physical enemies who want to physically kill him, and, and he's, he's praying for victory over these enemies. But the reality is all Old Testament physical deliverances were foreshadowing God's ultimate deliverance of his people. Again, it's the difference between relative value and ultimate value. And Jesus was alluding to this very thing in John chapter 7, verse 37. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'll say this as I conclude. Feast of Tabernacles was an important holiday in the Jewish tradition. It was the, a week where all the Jews would live in um, tents or huts. It was also called the, the Feast of Booths because it commemorated that, those years of wandering in the wilderness when, when they were wandering out of Egypt before they came into the Promised Land, and they just lived in tents where if they had water, you would live. If you didn't have water, you would die. And they would see constantly, time and again, God's miraculous provision of water. So at this Feast of Tabernacles, one of the big parts of it was, they would bring out these big jars of water from the Pool of Shiloh and and pour it down to remind the people of God's faithfulness to them. Well, on the last day of this feast, Jesus stands up and stands on the stairs and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, God's salvation finds its fullest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. I said earlier on that humans are hardwired to enjoy abundant life. You know, in John's gospel alone, 48 times John talks about Jesus as the means to life. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that he gives abundant life, and the reason he gives abundant life is he can give an an abundant life that is not dependent upon the things of this life. So it can't be taken from you. You're untouchable. You know, we talked about uh, how Psalms teaches us to live. Um, And it's no coincidence that there is no other book in the New Testament that speaks of the ministry and helps us get understanding of Jesus' life and ministry than the book of Psalms. You realize that? Whether it's Psalm 2 that's talking about Jesus' kingly sonship 
or Psalm 22 that talks about Jesus' sacrificial death, or Psalm 110 that's the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament, all of them refer to Jesus Christ. And the reason being is that Jesus is the means by which God gives to humanity something better than life itself. And I pray that that's something that we remember and always keep at the front of us. And this morning, we we have actually a really good physical or visible reminder of that as when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body, this is my blood given to you that you might have life. So it's a very appropriate way to end our service this morning. So if I can have our servers to come up, we're going to end with the Lord's Supper. And let me just say this. If you are visiting Christ Community Church and you can partake of communion at your own church, you are welcome to join us here. We would love to have you join us with us. Uh, If you have young kids or anything um, and they can't take communion, we'll just pray for them. Let our servers know. They'll be glad to pray for you. Uh, And then finally, uh, you see here, we have a gluten-free option. So for those of you who need a gluten-free option, come up to your server in the center aisle and just let them know. With that, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the many ways you remind us of grace, whether we're singing it, whether we're praying it, whether we're hearing it, whether we're receiving it. We are a people in desperate need of grace. And we thank you that you have given us so many ways to to wrap our minds around it and have our lives conform to it. Would you bless our Lord's Supper this morning? May it edify and honor honor you and edify one another. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.